Broadcasting live from the 2018 RMA International Conference at the Aria Resort in Las Vegas. It's time now for a special episode of Capital Club Radio. Broadcasting on the Pro Business Channel and across 16 syndication networks. This show made possible in part by Flock Specialty Finance. For more info, visit flockfinance.com. And now, here's your host, Chairman and CEO of Flock Specialty Finance, Michael Flock. Thank you and good afternoon. We are absolutely delighted and honored today to have one of the icons of the accounts receivables management industry on Capital Club Radio, Mike Ginsburg, CEO of Calkin Ginsburg. Now, I've known Mike for, gosh, I think now it's almost 20 years since we first met when I was running the Dunder Brass Street Receivables Management Company. And, uh, you know, he's got a terrific history, and he started with partnering with Marv Calkin. He founded one of the, probably the leading at the time, M&A advisory firms in this industry. I can't keep track of all the different tombstones. You've got dozens and dozens of these tombstones. So he was really the first real leader, I think, in M&A deals in this sector. Later, he and Marv founded Inside ARM in 2000. Mike is also founder of KG Prime, which provides market intelligence for ARM professionals. He's also a co-founder of Topline Valuation Group which provides ARM executives with technical, financial, and benchmarking services to improve their decision-making. Mike is also a member of ACA, DBA, now our RMA, where we are here today in Las Vegas, and is a recognized authority on important industry issues. He's a sought-after public speaker and recipient of many industry awards, including the NARCA Don Kramer Award and Collection Advisors Award. Welcome, Mike, and thank you for being here. Well, thank you for having me. This is uh, indeed an honor. Mike, I've known you uh, now for easily two decades, uh, back in the days of Dun & Bradstreet and then the various things that you've been a part of very successfully since then, uh, RMS, and uh, clearly with Flock uh, Enterprises and all the wonderful things that you've done for this industry. So um, I'm flattered to be here. I'm excited to talk to you about uh, my background and uh, it's been a, what did the Beatles say, a long, hard road, but it's been a very enjoyable road, and I call it an evolution. Well, Mike, you know, none of us ever dreams of getting into collections, but, you know, I, I think our listeners would like to know, you know, how did you get into collections? What motivated you to get here in the first place, and how did you get started with Marv Calkin? So Marvin started our business when he was 60 years old. He started it as a boutique M&A advisory firm, uh, retirement career. If he did one or two transactions every two or three years, he would have been thrilled. Prior to that, he had a family business. He got out of the family business, not collections. It was floor coverings. Managed his own investments, got credentials, partnered up with a former goalie of the, a former goalie of the Washington Capitals, Bernie Wolf, and started managing other people's high net worth individuals, athletes mostly. Uh, their net worth, and uh, investments. But Marvin is not an investments guy. So somebody called him and said, can you sell my business? Not a collection agency. Um, He, nine months later, completed that transaction. It was his first transaction, and he got hooked. And said, this is a cool business. He got a nice paycheck, which is always fun. Right. And he made somebody's life different and proved it. And he said, you know, this is great. I'm done selling stocks, bonds, annuities, and the junk market. I'm out, right? I'm going to do this for a living. He hung up a sign, and he became an M&A advisor in 1998. 
uh, excuse me, 1988. Um, I get these years and these decades confused after a while. It shows all the gray hair. Um, but interesting story. Marvin had a rule. When he started his business, he started in Bethesda, Maryland. Why in Bethesda, Maryland? Because he lived in Bethesda, Maryland. And at the age of 60, he wanted to walk to work. So he walked to work. And he had another rule. He wanted to be home every single day for lunch. This is true. This is true. We laugh, but this is true. So if he had a, and he never made a cold call in his life. So if he had a referral, he would entertain maybe selling their business. But in Bethesda, Maryland, it had to be inside the beltway because he had to be able to go home for lunch. Mm -hmm. If it was in Baltimore, he'd turn it down too far. If it was in Richmond, he'd turn it down too far. So I came to him and I'll, I'll, Get off base a little bit, but I'll come back to this in a second. I came to Marvin in 1990. Graduated from the University of Maryland, College Park. Go Terps. <laughs> um, and um, at that point in 1990, it was prior to the financial crisis, the yeah. worst time uh-huh. to try and find a job on Wall Street doing anything related to mergers, acquisitions, investment banking, capital rate. Mm-hmm. They were laying off by the tens of thousands, mm-hmm. certainly not hiring, hiring an undergrad from university with University of Maryland with an econ degree. Mm-hmm. It's not going to happen. Mm-hmm. So um, I begged and I pleaded wherever I could. Through a mutual friend, I met Marvin Calkin. Started this boutique M&A firm. I said, that's exciting. Let me go meet this guy. And he wasn't hiring anybody. He didn't want any staff. He had a couple of people who were doing deals around him. He didn't want anybody there. So uh, he said to me, listen, I'm not looking for anybody. And I said, I'll take the job. He said, no, you're not listening. I'm not hiring. And I said, thank you. I'll take it. And he ended up taking me on literally as an intern, unpaid for about six months. And I said, you know, this will be great. I'll go back to New York. I'm from the Bronx. I'll end up on Wall Street. This will be great. And this was right after college? Uh, about six months after six college, months. okay, I was uh, ringing up debt on my credit cards. I put myself through school, okay. So I was ringing up debt on my credit cards, and uh, I didn't want to go back home and just live at home. I wanted to have a job, so I was actually working at a toy store with a friend of mine, playing video games all day. But this was a great opportunity, so I met Marvin. <laughs> so video games, damn it! I was a video game guy. <laughs> okay. So uh, yeah, so we met, and he said, uh, "I'm not hiring anybody," and ended up he took me on as an intern. About six months later, he took me on as, I think my first title was associate, which basically meant he was paying me $200 a week, which in Bethesda, Maryland in 1990, now 91, was not a lot of money. And he said, you're responsible for your own parking. So I learned, <laughs> so I learned where to park that I wouldn't get booted or towed. And every so often I got booted or towed, but, but that's where I parked. So um, that kind of... That kind of worked for a while, and then you know, the rest is history. But to get into the collection business, I wanted to give you that little background. So now I'm with Marvin. Okay. And, and about but, six me. months later. Hold that thought. But where, where did Marvin get his knowledge of M&A? I mean, did he just teach himself? Did he? So Marvin's knowledge of M&A is through the School of Hard Knocks. School okay. of Hard Knocks. So he had a referral. Okay. He sold a business. Uh-huh. He owned a business. He sold his business. Okay. So he got experience by transacting. Doing but it. Marvin, more than M&A, was a guy who understood business. Okay. He understood the mentality of an owner. Okay. An owner, it's a very lonely profession. You can't really talk to anybody 
about what's going on in your business because they won't fully understand. You can't go home and complain about your business because your wife or your significant other might start to think that the world is coming to an end, mm-hmm. right? At work, you have to show up regardless of how you feel with a big smile on your face. We all kind of know this, right? And you have to play the game. But he could relate to that as a business owner himself, and he understood financial statements and got credential to be able to do that kind of stuff. And uh, M&A is not, it's not as much a science as it is an art and being able to put deals together. The key, obviously, is to find the right buyer, find the right valuation proposition, structure the deal. But then you have to find the right attorneys and accountants to help facilitate the transaction. Marvin was extremely well-networked, so he was able to do that. And really, he called himself the quarterback. He was the quarterback of the transaction. He would bring in the right professionals to be able to assist. But at the end of the day, he kept the deal in line. He was like the guardrails, kind of keeping the deal in line. So we, getting back to my my initial story, how we got into the collection business, which is what you were asking me about, Marvin had this rule. He wanted to be home for lunch every day. That's true. We had a referral. It was a collection agency. It was headquartered in Beltsville, Maryland. At this time, we were selling a um, auto, uh, a, a car, uh, a cleaning company for cars, auto detailing. That's what I was looking for. We were selling an apple orchard. True, selling an apple orchard. So somebody, uh, a chicken company, a poultry processor. Have you ever walked into a poultry processor? <laughs> oh, do not do it on a full stomach. Oh, no. Because it's an interesting place, especially almost 30 <laughs> years ago. It's a lot different than today, but I'll tell you, Purdue is a different kind of animal. Yeah. Anyway, getting back, we digress. But getting back to the, the story at hand here, um, this company was located in Beltsville, Maryland, so it qualified. Marvin can get home for lunch. It was about $3 million in revenue a year. Profitable, dropping about a million to the bottom line. Two owners. One was the past president of the ACA, so that was helpful. Um, and who was this that guy? Goldberg, time? Mike Goldberg, okay. and his partner Jerry Glazier was a sales guy. So, needless to say, they were connected, and they knew some people who were also connected. And we didn't know the industry at all. We didn't even know an industry really existed. It was not something that that we um, got into uh, intentionally. This was a referral. Marvin was starting a business that was industry agnostic. It was geographic. If it wasn't in its area, we weren't going to do the deal. That was it. So this fell into our laps, and we sold it. We actually sold it to an investor out of New York for cash because, truth be told, we didn't know anybody in the industry. We didn't know to take it to Paco American at the time, the largest, or FCA International. How would we know that? We didn't come from the industry. So we actually took it to a financial buyer out of New York. Uh, This guy was second generation, uh, born with silver spoon in his mouth in the petroleum industry. Good tennis player, by the way. And he ended up butchering the business. He bought this one. He lived on Long Island. This is fun aside. He lived on Long Island in a nice house. The guy who lived next to him lived in a beautiful house. He was a bill collector. He owned a collection agency. So this wizard bought not only the collection agency we were selling, he bought the collection agency next door. Destroyed them both. Basically turned the keys over to NCO years later. It was another transaction that NCO ended up buying. That got us And which into, company was that? Uh, Eastern, Eastern? Eastern Revenue. Eastern okay. Collections. Eastern Collections. Mm-hmm. Um, there are a lot of Easterns. There are a lot of, mm-hmm. In this industry, there are a lot of companies with exactly the same names mm-hmm. or the same initials. Mm-hmm. I sold three companies with the initial CCI. Mm-hmm. One was in Cleveland, one was in California, and one was somewhere else and shouldn't have been named CCI. 
Well, we sold it. Uh, so there's a lot of name uh, sharing in this industry. But that was our very first deal. And that served as a catalyst, taking us from this local generalist into an industry specialty. And what year was this? 91. 91. And in 1992, okay. we fanned the fire and did about a dozen deals in this industry. And most noteworthy, what really, and you might know this company, what really put us on the, on the map mm-hmm. was the sale of TRW's collection agency operation called Chilton Corporation mm-hmm. out of Texas mm-hmm. to a company. So TRW was headquartered in Cleveland. There was this Texas collection agency that we sold to a Philadelphia investor who started the company CRW. His name was Brian O'Neill. That kind of put us on the map. O'Neill Properties uh, diversified into collections, and it was off to the races after that. But wasn't this about the time when NCO was just starting its roll-up strategy? Prior. It was prior to the roll-up. NCO wasn't even a large business at the time. NCO went public in 1996. Right. We sold them a company Uh that at the time gave them critical size of about $50 million a year. Okay. At At the that was about a $15 million business, and NCO was only a $35 million business at the time. Right. Combined, $50 million. If you ask the underwriters who took them public uh, today if they would even touch a business of that size, back then they would. It was a $50 million revenue stream that mm-hmm. went public in 96. Mm-hmm. That's when they really started their consolidation mm-hmm. strategy. Mm-hmm. And, and you and Marv were part of all of that, I think, weren't you, over time? Uh, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, the first... The first what I remember the very first time that we got involved was a company by the name of OSI. Mm-hmm. Um, before OSI was started, uh, David Kreese actually came to us right. uh, for equity, and uh, he had an equity financing source, Heller, but Heller decided they weren't going to do equity. And that's when um, their, the private equity firm, uh, McCowan right who started that company, got involved with David Kreese, mm-hmm. and uh, Heller actually financed their first transaction. Right. So that, that really kind of... Tim Beffa was there? Tim Beffa came... Uh, that was well, later. Came after... That was way later. Crease. That was after they... Uh, right around the time that they bought Paco American. Yep. So Crease had a different strategy, and they ended up, uh, you know, parting ways or whatever, and then Crease got involved again in the mm-hmm. business. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, we were very, very involved with that whole private equity. In fact, an interesting statistic, between 1995 and roughly 2005... With the exception of one company, GC Services, uh, all of the top ten players were involved in at least one sale. Mm-hmm. Every one of them. Mm-hmm. RMS was one of them. Right. There were a lot of sales. Isn't yeah. that to uh, uh, a Pittsburgh bank, right? Uh, Initially. Yes. Uh, hold on. Which one was it? I put you on the spot for a change. Oh, gosh. Yeah, it was a pen. PE, it was uh, a PE fund right outside of uh, Pittsburgh. Yeah, that's uh, exactly right. I'll come to me in a second. But I wasn't part of that. I had left. You had left by, by that, that point. Right. And I had a retainer from GTCR, Bruce Rauner. There you go. Well, GTCR was um, a, a fun story. I'll tell you a fun story about private equity. So GTCR is based in Chicago, 92, 93, 94, 95. We're doing a whole slew of deals, many of which with private equity. We were doing some strategic buyers and some industry buyers, but a lot of private equity were emerging. We were showing GTCR a bunch of deals rejecting every single one of them, not even responding in some cases. So I'm a kid from the Bronx, right? So I have an attitude. So I picked up the phone and I called and I said, who's in charge? And the poor woman on the other side probably had a heart attack. She said, hold on a second. 
And she came back and she said, uh, who would you like to speak to? I, don't, I said, I don't know. So a gentleman by the name of Bruce Rauner picked up the phone. Yeah. I don't even know who this guy was. And he picks up the phone and he says, who are you? And I said, who are you? And we had a good uh, you know, starting conversation. And he said, if you want to learn how to do transactions, mm-hmm. he says, come up to Chicago and meet with me. And I said, when and where? And he said, are you kidding? And I said, no. He said, meet me at the bar in the O'Hare airport, X number of time, whatever, and we'll talk. So I said, okay. So I went to the bar, and I met him at the O'Hare airport, and we talked, and he said, 20-minute meeting. I flew from Washington for a 20-minute meeting at O'Hare airport with this guy I never met before, Bruce Rauner. He says to me, he says, Mike, he says, stop showing me deals and show me a leader. If you show me a leader, mm-hmm. I could back a leader. Mm-hmm. But I'm not just going to buy a company. It's like buying a boat without a rudder. Mm-hmm. He says, I'm not, I'm not going to do that. Mm-hmm. I said, I got it. I got it. I understand. The meeting was over in 20 minutes. I went back home. So a few, probably a week, no, about a month later, I called Rauner, and I said, payback's a bitch. Can I say that on the radio? I said, payback's a bitch. Um, you need to meet me now in Atlanta. Uh-huh. <laughs> I said, I have a CEO for you. Okay. And we're going to have a meeting. He's picking the restaurant, and he's going to pick the day. Are you in? He says, yep. absolutely. Mm-hmm. So he flew down. At the time, Dennis Cunningham was the CEO of the combined collection agencies of First Data Corporation and First Financial Asset Management, yep. a company called Nationwide Credit. Yep. And he was sitting fat and pretty with his stock options and a 1,000 employees, whatever, and uh, excited, and he says, I'm not going to meet with you. Well, he reluctantly agreed to have lunch mm-hmm. as long as we met in Buckhead. Mm-hmm. I think everything in Atlanta is Buckhead, right? Mm-hmm. So we met in Buckhead. Um, oh, no, everything in Atlanta is Peachtree, mm-hmm. right? So we met in Buckhead on Peachtree, whatever, at some restaurant, and uh, his restaurant, whatever he wanted to do. And they met, and um, about a month later, he resigned. And about a month later, he started as the CEO of a new company called Risk Management Alternatives. Yep, RMA. Eight months later, we did our first deal. Mm-hmm. He was on the payroll for eight months. He bought credit converters out of uh, Minneapolis, home of the Super Bowl, but that's 30 years later. Um, anyway, he um, uh, credit converters. We sold him a number of companies and followed through to the end and we ultimately sold that business. They should have sold it probably a year earlier. It would have been an interesting, uh, different transaction. I think companies like maybe Sally May would have bought it. Uh, it ended up NCO. A lot of roads lead back to NCO, right? NCO bought it years later. Uh, but that was a fun story. And I've become, I have become very friendly with Bruce Rauner. Mm-hmm. And now he's the governor of Illinois, Illinois yeah. right? So it's, it's been an interesting evolution. Yeah, this is what happens in the collection. Well, this is what happens in the collection business. My, we have governors of Illinois. How many uh, tombstones do you and Marv have now? In this industry, we've done upwards, uh, rounding up about 150 transactions. Oh, my God, in this 150 industry. transactions. Small, small, like 25 mid-size, years. So. Some midsize. Um, yeah, our first was in 91. Yep. Um, midsize transactions, some large companies, a lot of add-ons. Uh, we've brought in some of the largest strategic to this industry, West Corporation. Mm-hmm. Fun story. So West you brought that one in? West was really impacted by the national do-not-call legislation in 2005. Uh, as a call center, probably half of their revenue was going to go bye-bye mm-hmm. as a result of that mm-hmm. legislation, and they needed to fill that void mm-hmm. pretty substantially. Well, they had some friends on Wall Street and uh, a company uh, – 
firm by the name of Lazard actually referred them to me in the collection business uh, because they wanted to buy a market leader in the collection business. But they needed also, similar to uh, the story I just told you about GTCR, needed a leader, but also needed a large operation. I I convinced Jim Richards to meet with them, but Jim was only 18 months into a company called Attention LLC. Right. He had no interest in selling. In fact, he was very upset with me when I even brought up the idea of selling his business. But I said to Jim, and this is how we operate, I said to Jim, I said, Jim, in confidence, you shared with me your five-year plan. What if I told you that this gets you there quicker with a heck of a lot less risk? And you're going to get a greater return if you do this transaction. He said, with who? I'm listening. And he reluctantly agreed to a meeting in New Orleans. We met in New Orleans. And um, Rob Johnson was there and a few other people at the time. And ultimately, that deal was done. That was their first acquisition at West Corporation. Their first acquisition. And Jim became head of that division, right? Yeah, and Worldwide was a part of that. And then they sold it all off to Lorica and all that years later. Did you do that deal, too? Uh, the worldwide deal? Yeah. No, that was direct. Okay. That was direct with Jim and yep. Frank and you know and all okay. that kind of stuff. But there's just been and the other I'll tell you another large um strategic this is a fun story. Uh GE, small company. GE decided they wanted to be in the collection business. You all remember when uh Jack Welsh was was running the company, we're going back a few years. He had a meeting with all of his seniors, they call them the bees, anybody who runs a billion dollar division of GE is called the bees. Well, he had a meeting with his bees and said, we're going to start vertical integration. Okay. We're going to start looking at our P and L and figure out who we could buy and what we could do and how we could do deals, whatever. So, um, one of their divisions, one of their bees was FGIC. FGIC was, um, a guarantor of bonds for municipalities across the country. Well, they wanted to buy a collection agency that serviced municipalities. So they came down to our office. We were in Bethesda, Maryland at the time. We sat down with literally 10 of these guys and the small army, and they came down. They wanted to talk about doing deals. They actually had a list of the 10 companies that they thought that they should buy. Well, these were, at the time, GE had a motto. We're number one or number two in any industry that we get involved in or else we get out of that industry. We have to be number one or number two in the industries we service. Okay. So they had a list of the top 10, what they perceived as the top pen, uh, 10 bill collectors at the time, and they wanted to buy one of them. All right, that's cool. So I looked at the list, and they hired us to do research. Well, I quickly could have told them, you can't buy any company on this list because the largest one that actually serviced the type of paper that they wanted was GC Services. Mm-hmm. But GC Service, 90% of their business was not in municipalities. So you're going to overpay to buy a company that right. provided the service you were looking for. I said, what if I told you you could buy a municipality specialist? It's a fun story. I said, they were excited. That's what they wanted to buy. So I said to them, yeah, we have a company. It's in Spokane, Washington. It's available for sale, and I think it's a good fit for you. So, yeah, how, how large is it? And I said, $10 million. They said, $10 million in profit? I said, <laughs> No. Uh-oh. <laughs> they said $10 million in monthly revenue? I said, no. They said $10 million in annual revenue? I said, yes, but they're a specialist in municipalities. <laughs> they said, don't you understand you're working with GE? Well, they ended up buying that company. Mm-hmm. They paid cash for it. It was a nice business. Which company was that? And, uh, it was called S, as in Sam, SCA Credit. It was out in uh, Spokane. It actually okay. was in Spokane and Northern okay. California. 
And about three years later, they realized they needed capacity, and they uh, bought a small collection agency by the name of Great Lakes. About four years later, Buffalo. About four, yes. And about four years later, they realized they shouldn't be in the collection business, (laughs) and we divested that business also to NCO Group. So all roads do lead back. Many roads. So so you helped them divest. Four years later, we did. So you made money on both sides of the deal. Three ways. That was a three-way transaction. You know, <laughs> contrary to what Mike. Donald Trump would say, <laughs> yeah. there doesn't have to be a winner and a loser in every transaction. Oh, okay. Sometimes there could be winners in the transaction. In this case, we actually were— But the broker but, wins each time. Well, I didn't want them to get out. I wanted to continue to gobble up and grow, but they right. decided they wanted to divest. Right. Luckily, they wanted to divest with us. So that was okay. So, so, you, so you provided me with – I know we're going off on a tangent. Yeah, you no, provided me with a series of are questions here, and all I did was tell you, you stories for 20 You years. said you have 150 tombstones over 25 to 30 years. So what are some of the common denominators? I'll just tell you a few that I've heard. You know, uh, It's more art than science, right? You've got to think like an owner. Uh, leadership is really important. Uh, also, you've got lots of big capital sources uh, that you've lined up to buy these companies. Correct. But what else? What, what are some of the common denominators of success that you and Marv have learned over the of these three decades when you're clearly the leader of all M&A deals if, in the middle market? Well, thank you, uh, and I, I appreciate you that. You've know large market. You've some large deals here that Yeah, various deals um, yeah. over the years, uh, well over $3.5 billion of, of transactions, values. Um, the answer to the question is is not simple, but I think it's um, there are a few uh, components uh, to it. Um, first, these are service businesses. Whether it's an add-on mm-hmm. to an existing platform or a starting point for someone to get into this industry, and I don't care if it's a financial investor or another player in the industry looking to diversify into a new market segment mm-hmm. or a company like GE getting the collections for the first time. It's a service business. Mm-hmm. These businesses don't run themselves. And the disasters that I've seen in the marketplace is when they parachute people in who think that they could run these businesses, mm-hmm. and they've never run and operated these businesses before. Mm-hmm. This industry had what was called a poof IPO years ago, Compass International, a roll-up IPO. Five companies came together. This was a sexy strategy on Wall Street at the time. Companies that didn't have the capacity to go public as a standalone, they come together as a merger almost simultaneously, and they go public. Well, Compass did this. They alienated each and every one mm-hmm. of the CEOs of these divisional service companies. Even though some of them had stock more than others, they all had some stock. That was the nature of this transaction. But they parachuted two guys in uh, from American Express, and they didn't know how to run a collection agency. They didn't know how to manage it down, let alone deal with the clients. They didn't know how to deal with collectors. It just didn't work that way. So I think one of the major, major ingredients is to recognize, I don't care how many credentials you have or how many degrees you have from Harvard or whatever, this is a tough business. It's the collection business. And these people thoroughly understand how to run and operate a call center successfully so strong to deal operators. with clients, yeah. strong operators, and uh, succession, Okay, strong succession. Yep. Don't alienate the existing team. That's number one. Number two, um, and in no particular order, uh, technology is very important in this business. 
it's an enabler. It's an ability for these guys to service tens of millions of accounts on an annual basis, especially if they're dealing in markets like financial services or telecom. Mm-hmm. Um, these businesses, many of them are cash cows, and they don't reinvest back into the business the way they should. Well, I try to explain to an owner in a boardroom, you can't have it both ways. If that business is your personal piggy bank, well, God bless you, and that's great. But if you're not properly capitalizing your business, you're not going to get paid a premium. It's not going to be a successful transaction Mm -hmm. because the sustainability won't be there post-transaction. So reinvestment back into the business is a, a simple answer for a nice return on equity when you're ready to sell the business. Technology is very important. The other thing, too, that I think is extremely important that we just learned last couple of weeks, client concentration will kill you. It will kill you in this business. Um, classic example is the U.S. Department of Education. The largest plum client everybody wanted a piece of the ed contract. If you couldn't get it as an unrestricted, meaning the large, you got it as a restricted, meaning the small, because the government requires small companies to service their accounts, um, or you got it as a, um, uh, a subcontractor. A lot of folks got it as subcontractors. But we learned this go-around that it went from last, last time was 17 large client, large agencies to seven large agencies who got the contract They thought they got the contract, but only two of them have it going forward, and only one from the seven who were awarded the contract last year don't even have it. By definition, they all suffer from concentration. Now, larger companies, maybe like GC Services or Transworld Systems, might not be as impacted as some smaller companies who have a disproportionate percentage of their revenue and profit coming from this one client. We also saw this years ago. In financial services, Mm -hmm. the catalyst for this industry, the largest growth catalyst leading up to the Great Recession was credit card proliferation, non-performing, non-secured loans, uh, subprime was a major, major catalyst. But if you really peel away, this is part of my book. As a matter of fact, we've if got to you, get this book published. If you really yeah. peel away, this is a good book. You'd read it. No one else would read I it. Know. My mother might read we'll, it. We'll, we'll, My mother's going to listen to this news story, uh, okay. this uh, radio uh, story. Anyway, um, these companies, um, what was I just talking about? Um, credit card proliferation. Oh, yes. So the credit cards uh, were, were dominant in the um, right. time leading up to the Great Recession. But it was really four large banks. If you think about the large banks, 80% of the revenue that was generated in financial services came from four banks, Mm -hmm. Capital One, B of A, Chase, and Citi. That was it. I mean, American Express and others. Wells wasn't even the picture at that level at that time, though they're the largest now. Four large banks created this industry. When I say this industry, the Debt Buying Association, now RMA, was started in the heydays because of the debt sales of four large banks. That growth was substantial, but a lot of agencies took it on the chin Mm -hmm. in 2007 with the mortgage and then 2008 with the financial crisis Mm -hmm. because they did not diversify. So the next word on there is diversification. The last word that I would put on there is sustainability. Okay? It's a simple simple word, sustainable top line and bottom line performance. 
Buyers don't like erratic lines like, you know, seeing emergency rooms. They don't like that kind of stuff. They want to see consistent top line and bottom line growth. You rarely see that in business. So you need a good operator who could explain that. Why did that drop? How is it going to go back up? Why did it spike? And be able to really have a good basis Mm -hmm. for your assumptions, Mm -hmm. especially if you're going to project. A lot of companies in this industry don't even have a budget let alone a projection. Mm -hmm. They really don't even have a budget. They have historical financial statements. Many of them are audited because the client demands it. Most of them are not. Uh, But they don't have a budget, and they don't have a, 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 let alone a a forecast. And they don't have the basis to support it. I don't need all of that. But if you want to see a successful transaction, show some sustainability. Mm -hmm. Because buyers seldom want to buy a business that's going away. They want to buy a business... To grow it. Mm-hmm. Why are they buying the business? Mm-hmm. They want to get a return on their dollars mm-hmm. or else they keep their money in their mattress. Mm-hmm. But the diversity helps the sustainability because that's all of it goes together. goes to the concentration it's critical. issue. That's and right. these are all – and these are simple components of a service business. Right. But if you check the box and you have all those things mm-hmm. kind of going for you, even in down markets – because one of the things you wanted to talk about right. was the recession and how impactful that was. That was the single most pervasive event in the history of this industry. People say, well, what about the Great Depression? Well, collection agencies didn't exist in the 1920s. Right. They really started after World War II with the advent of credit. That's really when this industry started. Well, if that's the case, nobody remembers the Great Depression. But everybody remembers the Great Recession because it directly... Prior to that, people thought this industry was recession-proof. They use that word a lot. Yep. I always educate them that it was recession-resistant. It lagged no, host, behind most uh, major indicators, and it came out mm-hmm. um, of a recession quicker. It was a good barometer. But the recession really punched this industry square in the mouth. The recession followed by, I would call it, the, the great regulation of the CFPB, which changed it was a game changer in many Absolutely respects, was. especially for debt buyers with all the rules on still is. Uh, on reselling, you it know, in chain of title. Um, so what's your outlook for, for the debt buying industry right now? I mean, we, we were in the dregs. We were in the drought, you know, a few years ago. It seems like it's maybe coming back now. Well, last year so we had a changing of the guard with the Trump administration yep. and the Republicans now in office, right? So that's an exciting time. You come to this conference literally last year. Years before it was somber, people were like you know, yep. scared to be here. It was a ghost town. People were quiet. Last year, there was excitement. Industry. People yeah. were thrilled yep. that there was a changing of the guard, and really because regulation was going to be impacted, specifically Dodd-Frank. And we thought, you know, if Dodd-Frank was going to be addressed, then the CFPB, of course, would also be addressed. We never thought it would be disbanded. We thought it would be overhauled and balanced. The pendulum really went towards the consumer. We hope that that pendulum would come back to equilibrium so businesses can perform in this industry. It still hasn't. And that, unfortunately, whether you're a Republican or a Democrat, and I don't want to make this a political conversation, but sometimes Trump can't get out of his own way, mm-hmm. you know, and the things he says mm-hmm. and obviously Russia and other issues that, you know, he has to deal with. He was supposed to, one of his major initiatives was regulation. Okay. Tax reform yeah. Yeah. was one, and Obamacare was another, but addressing regulation to deregulate, right, and to bring it back towards equilibrium. Well, he hasn't addressed Dodd-Frank yet. Until that happens, the CFPB will continue on its way. Now they have a little bit more of checks and balances. There was a little bit of a changing of the guard there, but it's still impactful. 
and it's going to be impactful. TCPA, the lawsuits out there are hugely impactful. Technology is about 20 years ahead of where regulation is in this industry. And until they catch up, it's very hard to use technology without a lawsuit. Well, Mike, this has been fascinating, and uh, we're running out of time here. Uh, we've talked a lot about some terrific stories, and, and you could you could be the historian, really, for this industry. Well, thank um, you. You've had an awesome track record. You've got to have a parting shot. You gave me 15 questions yeah, there. Pick we're, we're one, gonna, and let's have a parting We're going to have to invite you My back. My mom doesn't want to listen to this yet. No, we're going to have something. to invite you back. because Give me something my mom can like. You know? <laughs> we want to invite you back very soon, but before we say goodbye this afternoon, I, you know, you've talked a lot about the industry and your outlook on the industry, the ups and downs of the industry. What is your outlook for Calk and Ginsburg going forward, and, and, and how is Calk and Ginsburg going to continue to grow and serve this industry? I know you've got Inside ARM, you've got uh, KG Prime. G- give our listeners, you know, kind of how Calk and Ginsburg and Mike Ginsburg so in our past, them we, in the we, future. We had, um, it's, it's interesting. Uh, we did start the first M&A uh, firm specializing in the uh, arm industry. We'd had that, that, and we still have that today. We started the first news business, um, information uh, news information portal in Inside Arm, and that that's a fun story. And I'll, I'll tell you that another time. The evolution of uh, collectionindustry.com into Inside Arm management now runs and operates that business, and they do a fantastic job. Stephanie. Uh, was groomed for that business, really. She does a, a fantastic job running uh, Inside Arm. Um, top line is, uh, is a support business for valuation and financial products in the industry. Very proud of that. We teamed up with the uh, a leading uh, accounting firm, Santos Postal, in the Washington area, really to provide an array of financial products to this industry that didn't exist before. But the future of this really is, um, I, and in my opinion, is KG Prime. KG Prime is a member-only exclusive business, and we created this for one sole purpose. We wanted arm companies to be able to come together to share information and feel comfortable doing so without the parasite attorneys that mm-hmm. are out there suing these companies. Mm-hmm. So it's a restrictive site, and it'll be live events and things like that. But it's really created, uh, if you think of us as strategic advisors, we're trying to create that one spot where folks can come for strategic advice, okay? So it could be a technology company, and they could be launching a, uh, an AI, you know, artificial intelligence way of doing things. Well, if they promote it, that's publicity, and that's great. But if we really look at it strategically and how it's impactful to the business, now owner-operators can make an informed decision, We've been doing that in the boardroom. Now we're doing that online, and that's really the future of what we're doing. We'll continue to do transactions. I'm a deal junkie. I'm always looking for my next fix. I hate to use drug analogies. We're in Vegas, though. (laughs) What goes on in Vegas stays in Vegas. But seriously, M&A is a strategic advisory work. All we're trying to do through KG Prime is create a universe we could do that online. That's what it's all about right now. So that's like the next 20-year vision. And the market know, the intelligence industry. of uh, KG Prime can be more, a little more specific. What exactly? So we um, Give us an example. Absolutely. We, about 
five years ago started a uh, fellowship with the University of Maryland, right around the time that they moved to the Big Ten, as a matter of fact. And that was um, that was great for us because their access to information is unparalleled, as far as I'm concerned. And we have tremendous non-commercial access to information. So I've actually hired a few people from that program. We've had about 150 students come through that program. Uh, we do a lot of research. We've written reports over the years, seven reports on the uh, arm industry, a global debt buying report various other reports. But the problem, Michael, if I send you a report, a 150-page PDF, you're going to look at me like I'm blue, okay? Mm -hmm. And you're going to say, what am I going to do with a 150-page PDF? It looks great. I'll try to put it right over here. But today, people want short bursts of information. So we blew up the report writing model. We've been doing research for 20 years, but we no longer write reports. So everything is in, online is in small doses so people can gather the intelligence that they want. And our analysts, and we have analysts who really do this, help you navigate by related research. So if you want more information, you mm-hmm. can find more information. But if you want short bursts of exact information that you're looking for, mm-hmm. for the first time, not only you get that information, but it's a social media platform. You could share it with people. That's really what it's all about. So we've done a lot of intelligence, market intelligence and information. Now we're partnering with firms who provide information like compliance that we can't provide. They provide information like technology that we can't provide. And these are people who are contributors to this industry who want to see it moving forward in a uniform way, who are spending, and I kid you not, tens of thousands of dollars a month to market their products and services by coming to conferences and advertising and doing a whole variety of different things, but they don't really have that point where they can congregate. And we're trying to create that one point where people can congregate to get an informed, make an informed decision. It's really that simple. So it's not complicated. I'm not a complicated guy. You know, I went to public school in 95. I graduated from Mayapac, and I have an undergraduate degree from uh, University of Maryland College Park. I can't be any more any more uncomplicated than that, right? It's uncomplicated a word. It is today. Um, but anyway, you know, it's, it, it, it's a simple philosophy, but it's like seeing the field a little bit different. Uh, we digress, but I'll just tell you a very fun story as we end this. So we sold that first collection agency, Eastern. Uh, it'll be quick, I promise. I know you're looking at your watch. Um, we sold Eastern uh, Credit in 1991. I called my mother. Mom sold this company. Moms get excited, right? She said, oh, really? What'd you do? And I told her about the transaction. She said, what kind of company did you sell? And I said, it's a collection agency. And she says, oh, yeah, Michael? When she calls me Michael, you know there's problems. (laughs) Oh, yeah, Michael? Yeah. What do they collect? She was hoping I would say garbage, right? (laughs) Or art, maybe art collections or something. And collections is kind of both of those, right? But I said, no, they collect bills. She said, pack your bags. You're coming home. No son of mine is going to be a bill collector. Mm -hmm. And I said, mom, you have no idea what I do for a living. To this day, she has no idea what I do for a living. However, I gave her two grandkids. Uh, So she's happy. Okay. Right. And they're both healthy and been married for 25, almost 25 years. So she's happy about that. But moms are are great. Anyway, I thought I would end on a fun story like that. Mike, this has been a terrific uh, conversation this afternoon. I mean, starting as an intern with Mark Hawkin, doing your first deal, Eastern Credit, 
And and now after what nearly thirty years and one hundred and fifty tombstones and a lot of gray hairs, a few we all have that. And well, no, and, you're blind. <laughs> so you're going to go white, go or you're going to go there. But you know, the first <laughs> He's the go first white. really M and A successful boutique dedicated to this whole industry, the first news organization, and now the first kind of market intelligence, um, you know, company that you've got, KG Prime. Thank you. Uh, you know, very, very impressive track record. And I just want to thank you for this uh, this rich story of uh, kind of the past, Calkin Ginsburg, and the outlook, which seems pretty bright and expanding for, uh, for your company and for our industry. Uh, and thanks personally for your commitment to the – being the enthusiastic cheerleader for all the members here at DBA, now called RMA. Uh, it's been outstanding. We want to have you back. These are incredible stories, and you've got to write that book. and finish. Well, you've started. You've got to publish that book, and I'll give you a few chapters you can add to it. Absolutely. I, I, I want to thank you and your team here. Uh, very professional, extremely well done. You made me at ease by providing me with really thoughtful, uh, not only con- uh, questions, but conversation pieces. You guided this magnificently. Clearly, you've done this many times before, and you're extremely comfortable in what you do. But this is a tremendous platform. It's, it's been a lot of fun. I'll tell you, my uh, former partner, Marvin Calkin, passed away. A little while ago, and I think he would be extremely proud. He always said to be successful, you have to be sustainable yourself. You have to be in business to be in business. And after almost 30 years of doing this kind of stuff, I think one thing we do have, maybe it's the only thing we have, is sustainability. Uh, But I'll tell you, uh, this has been a lot of fun, and I really, really enjoyed it. And personally, thank you for the opportunity to talk. This, This has been wonderful. Mike, we'll do it again very soon. I hope so. Congratulations on the tremendous track record you've got. Well, thank you, and thank you all. Okay. We want to thank you for listening to this special episode of Capital Club Radio with your host, Michael Flock, and his guest, live from the 2018 RMA International Conference at the Aria Resort in Las Vegas. Made possible in part by Flock Specialty Finance. More than a transaction. For more info visit flockfinance.com. To listen to a rebroadcast and more episodes, visit capitalclubradio.com.